0: page 1512, 1512 in your pew Bible. We're going to read about John the Baptist's question to Jesus. Was he the Messiah? Was he not? A lot of that had to do with missed expectations. Certain expectations were placed upon Jesus and he didn't seem to be meeting them. And so there was this uncertainty. Was he in fact who he said he was, and then we'll hear how Jesus responds, and that's something of what we have in the Catechism this uh, afternoon in Lord's Day 48 concerning the advancement of God's kingdom. In our prayers, we pray that the Lord's kingdom would come. Then we'll begin at verse 1 in Matthew 11. Hear the word of God. After Jesus had finished instructing rather, his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me." As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it, was, it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the, law, or for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He was ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they, drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions for the reading of God's holy word. Then to Lord's Day 48, that's page 255 or page 200 or page 895, 895 in the Trinity, 255 in the Forms and Prayers book. It's a single question and an answer again, 123. And now we're talking about the second petition, your kingdom come. And let's together then answer this question. What does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all, This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, today we have something that seems a little bit anachronistic before us, the idea of a kingdom. We don't speak of kingdoms all that frequently anymore. There are still some kingdoms in our world. Canada used to be a dominion, and that's another word for, or that's a kingdom word, if you will. Uh, but generally speaking, kingdoms seem to be things that are uh, what we read about in novels or in um, history books. Places that were ruled by kings, by monarchs that had absolute authority and ruled by the power of their swords. But the truth is, uh, the notion of kingdoms, or at least what is behind this language in our Bibles, is not all that old-fashioned after all. The truth is, all of us are on some level kingdom builders. We're all striving to establish some kind of place, realm, where there is blessing, where there is peace, where there is security for those that we love. Our kingdom may be very small, it may be just our own family, our own home. Our kingdom might be a little bit bigger, maybe it's our business, maybe it's uh, something beyond that. We can even think in terms of communities or cultures, congregations or countries. All of these things are places where we want to see blessing, where we want to see order, where we want to see security experienced by all the people in that place, all the people that belong to that community. And that was, of course, and that is, of course, a good thing. That is a natural instinct for all humanity to to follow, and and for good reason. Long time ago, God said to man, you are to have dominion. You're to be a king, and I've given you a queen to reign with you. You together are over this kingdom that I have created for you, the, the paradise in the Garden of Eden. And the idea was that they would extend, that they would advance their kingdom or this kingdom of God over the whole face of the earth. Have dominion and fill the earth, God said to man. So the idea that we should advance a kingdom, that we should as kings and queens administer authority in such a way that blessing would extend over all the face of the earth, that's a that's a human thing to do. That's what God commanded us to do. Now of course we rejected that we decided we wanted to advance a different kingdom when the devil came to us in the garden and said look join with me this isn't of course how he said it but this is what he meant join with me in advancing a different kingdom not like the kingdom God wants where he's sovereign advance a kingdom with me where you're sovereign where you're the king and you have absolute authority and no one can prevent you from doing what you want And that's really the the nature of man in sin. I think we can recognize that if you look around. If you look at our our current uh, fearless leader, uh, he has told us that uh, this pandemic has provided him and his government an opportunity for a grand reset, a great reset. We can now, because the economy and everything's gone up uh, into smoke, we can now reset everything the way it should be. The way... Who says it should be? Well, of course, it's the way Justin Trudeau says it should be. His vision, his concept of what Canada should be is the one that he wants to impose upon this nation. And that's really what all political parties do, isn't it? That's what all politicians say. They say, vote for me because I'll make your world a better place. Vote for me because I will impose a better vision of reality on this earth. And so we live in this fallen world with this, this advancing kingdom, this idea of, of all of us, of all of humanity, trying to advance their kingdom on the earth. But it doesn't bring blessing, does it? It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring peace and security. In fact, just look at the world in which we live. Uh, there's so much division, so much rancor, so much anger, so much hatred, there's so much trouble in our society, and our rulers can't figure it out. If everybody would just listen to what I say, then everything would be fine. And yet people have the temerity to disagree. And as a result, they're dismissed as misogynistic and as racist and not worthy of tolerance. Because that's what happens when you advance your own kingdom. It doesn't produce the thing you want. It doesn't produce blessing. It doesn't produce peace and order. It produces instead division. It produces pain. It produces anger. Thankfully, there is a kingdom where you can find peace, prosperity, blessing, uh, order, and security. And that is in the kingdom of God. A kingdom that advances and that we seek to participate in the advancement of when we pray, Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom comes. Now, you might imagine that the very first thought that the catechism would give to us on this matter, on this issue of the kingdom of God, would be, may your kingdom come in the lives of other people. Because we're all here, right? We're already on board. We're acknowledging Jesus as king. But there's a great big world out there that opposes us and that doesn't do what God wants and it's a terrible place. And so wouldn't it be good if God's army was given complete victory over the world. And so you'd think that the coming of the kingdom would first involve the defeat of our enemies. That's not what the catechism says, does it? The very first thing the catechism says about the kingdom of God is this, rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. This is a petition that doesn't begin with others, but begins with us and the conquest of our own hearts. Now here's an important principle, that to be a Christian is to submit to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in very concrete and practical terms. This is increasingly a a commitment that is disregarded even within Christian circles. Within too many Christian communities these days, you're not expected to live a certain way, to live in obedience to Christ, to submit your life in service to him. You're only expected to have some kind of vague feeling about the fact that you believe you're saved. If you can say that you think you're saved, well, what can be done about it? But the notion that you should have to live in accordance with the word and will of God... That is a diminishing concept within the church today. And because it takes so very little for us to rise above the filth of our world, and our world is increasingly immoral and depraved in so many ways, because it's so easy to be better than our neighbors and our co-workers whose lives are all a mess, it is possible for us to think, well, I might not be doing much, but I'm good enough if all we're doing is the very bare minimum of piety. But none of this is the call of the gospel or of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in his ministry calls his people to total surrender to him. And for good reason, he came to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. He doesn't just come to save us from the guilt of sin. That he certainly does. We have the peace that passes understanding in that we are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ all the wrongs that we've done. And so we can be certain that in Jesus Christ we have forgiveness. But we also have victory. We also have deliverance from the power of sin. And the power of sin no longer can force us, can challenge us, can demand that we obey it. We are now able to not sin. It doesn't mean that we're particularly good at that, but it's still true that in Jesus Christ we have been freed from the power of sin. That's why he came to save us, not just to wash us clean and put us on a shelf. He came to justify us, but also to sanctify us. Indeed, on Pentecost Sunday, what does the Lord do? He pours out his Holy Spirit. Why should he pour out his Holy Spirit if all he wanted to do was get our souls to heaven? If all he wanted to do was to wash us clean, then the Holy Spirit's ministry would hardly be necessary. And yet he pours out the Holy Spirit so that we might be transformed, born again, renewed, sanctified by the power of his grace in the way of holiness. He comes to make us new creatures. So our expectation as Christians, from the youngest to the oldest, should be that to live the Christian life is more than a verbal acknowledgement of something. It is a daily transformation, renewal, and commitment to living for the Lord. To be a Christian is to commit our lives to living under the reign and rule of our King Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, if you can see that in the light of God's word, in the light of such passages as Matthew 10, just before what we read from Matthew 11, where Jesus says that a student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And as he says later on in Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven or if you think of what he says when he talks about in Matthew chapter 7 the call to live according to the way and will of God not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven or you think of John's John's letters rather where he talks about to be a believer is to obey God to walk in his way if you understand what Jesus means when he says take up your cross and follow me What he means when he says, lose your life for my sake and you will gain it, then you understand that the very first thing that we need to ask God to do in this petition of the Lord's Prayer is to help us. If you understand what God is asking of you as a Christian, that you surrender every thought, every word, every action, every moment, every priority, every philosophy, every aspect of your life, to living for Jesus, if you know how big a deal it is to be a Christian, how big a deal it is to call Christ Lord, then you will know why you need to pray. Your kingdom come. Not for other people, first of all, but first of all for me. We continue to struggle with sin in this life. We continue to walk in its familiar ways. We fail far more often than we succeed. Which means that before we can ever think about advancing the kingdom of Christ in this world, we first need to ask Jesus to work in our hearts and seek his power to, to ex- exercise victory in our lives. But once we've done that, once we've acknowledged that and strive to live for the Lord after... We show by the choices we make, by the actions we do, by the words we speak, whether they're on the job site, whether they're in the home, whether they're in our relationship when we're alone with our our boyfriend or our girlfriend, our husband or wife, when, when nobody else is looking, if we're then striving to live for the Lord, then we can talk about advancing the kingdom of God beyond the walls of the church. Well, not quite, not quite. What the Catechism says in the second place is that we're not only to ask God to rule us by his word and spirit so that more and more we submit to him, but that he is to preserve and increase the church. So there is a private dimension to this petition, Lord, do something to me, and then there's a public dimension to this petition, do something to the church, to the world around us, although not in the way that we might expect. Because a kingdom, even the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you would assume advances in the way that every kingdom has ever advanced. Kingdoms have been advancing and receding throughout all of history, and there's a fairly predictable pattern to how this goes. Somebody gains power. Somebody imposes his will, his benevolent will upon a world, upon a citizenry, upon a community. Everybody loves living and serving in this place. The country grows and develops. Economic tools become part of the way in which that kingdom now begins to advance. Social tools, etc., etc. It's like every nation ever in the world. And every nation follows a predictable pattern. So surely the kingdom of God will follow that same pattern, that there will be the imposition of reign and rule, and then there will be... All of these various political economic and social tools used to advance the kingdom of Christ and the church has believed that at times if you read the history of the church and if you particularly consider the role of popes in history and you see how they at times were more political creatures and more powerful with their armies and their economic means than they were with their spiritual or pious means then you can see how it is tempting for the church to use the tools of the world to advance the plan and purpose of God. You can talk about the moral majority. You can talk about uh, the Christian right. You can talk about, uh, you think of the United States in particular, and you think of some of the names that are associated uh, with powerful political lobbies. Then you see that it is tempting for the church to advance the kingdom of God to advance the role and the reign of the church with the tools of power, with the tools of the world. We will get people to do what we say by laws, by by, uh, other means that we have available to us in order that we might ensure that this remains a Christian country. And yet Jesus will have none of it. Jesus instead does the oddest thing for he advances his kingdom with word and sacrament Now, now this this is the most foolish thing imaginable I mean how can a few words and then a bit of water bread and wine possibly advance a kingdom of God in the society and culture in which we live Our culture, Western civilization generally, is suffering the results of its persistent rejection of God. Our culture, our society is crumbling and decaying. It is going through the death throes of a culture even now precisely because it made some choices some 400 years ago and it decided then that it would no longer walk in the way of the world or the way of the Lord and the way of His will. You can read this if you read Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. It's a rather thick and challenging tome to get through, but he details how it is that we got to this day and age. You can listen to Dr. Bob Godfrey. Uh, if you listen to some of his um, Sunday school lessons, you can find them uh, on the web. He details as well in little easy snippets uh, the, the, how it is that we've ended up in the culture that we've ended up in. And and the the. the simple answer, the simple explanation you discover in, in these things is that when society rejects the, 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 the point of reference, the, the anchor, the, the, the security of God, the centrality of God, then what, what results is chaos and irrationality and ultimately power. Because in the end, right, if there is no objective truth to appeal to, if there is no reality that exists beyond my own opinion, then all that matters is that I get what I want. All that matters is that I can get you to do what I want you to do. And so the descent of of humanity is almost always into... The, the will to power, as Nietzsche taught. Man, when he can no longer win with words, wins with his fists. He grabs the reins of power and he imposes his will with with power, with, with weapons of war. And now into this battle. So this is our world. This is the culture in which we're living right now. And now God says to us, here's what I want you to do. You see this enormous battle that's raging with all of these large weapons and these, these powerful institutions and these brilliant minds? Yeah, I want you to go into that gunfight with not even a knife, but just a word. I want you to say something into that noise, into that extreme I want you to say something about Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, is that the whisper of God is more powerful than the shout of any man. Elijah learned that, didn't he, when he went up on the mountain? He wasn't, God wasn't in the thunder, and he wasn't in the earthquake, and he, he was in the voice, the still voice. For God from the beginning has used his voice, used his word to shape reality. God spoke and it was. God spoke and dead were raised. God spoke and nations trembled. God sends his word, sends preachers, sends witnesses of his gospel with the foolishness of a word that is more powerful than any atomic weapon this world has ever developed. Doesn't Paul teach us that? Greeks look for wisdom, Jews demand miraculous signs, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It it seems so contrary to expectation. It seems so impossible. It seems so frightening to us. All we can do when we go to witness to our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, is give to them a word. A word that, that sometimes we struggle to understand. A word that, that, that we can't always explain in the most brilliant of ways. But a word that we know is true. A word of hope and of power. A word of grace and of goodness. A quiet word. A thoughtful word. An intellectual word but a word that speaks of Jesus and of his grace. Yet in that word is the power of God to save. The power of God to save you and to save me and to save all men. So that our commitment as those who pray this petition, your kingdom come. If we're going to remain steadfast as a church against the challenges of our day, our commitment as a community must be to this word. We need this word to preserve us, to protect us, to keep us focused. We need to reorient every week again and throughout the week. We need to focus more and more. The society around us is decaying. We need to be able to stand against it. And how do you do that? Not with less word, but with more word, more devotions, more Bible study, more preaching. We need God to preserve us as a congregation, to preserve us in this word as a denomination, we need to be kept in this word. As a people, we need to be rooted in this word. And if we're going to see the kingdom of God advance, we're going to need to value, participate, encourage, and support the witness of this word to the world. We're going to need to spread the gospel by speaking into the maelstrom, into the, into the enormous chaos of today's society. The name of Jesus Christ and his power to save will who trust in him. And we must be motivated with an urgency to do this. Just as we need to be urgently submitting our lives more and more to Jesus Christ, we need to be urgently seeking to win the neighbor, to win the lost, to win those who are walking in unbelief. Precisely because of what we pray next. So not only do we ask the Lord to rule us and to preserve and increase his church, we also ask that he destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Now here is what for many is the dark side of the scriptures and of this petition. Many people don't like how in the Old Testament in particular you often hear about God's wrath and the destruction of enemies and kill them all and kill all those babies and it seems so harsh and so cruel. The New Testament God is sometimes presented as a slightly better version because he's all about love and he's all about grace. Now most people that think that haven't read the New Testament and they don't know the wrath of our Savior. But the truth is even we can struggle with this aspect of this petition Do we really want Jesus to do these things? With the devil's work, of course, it says that's the first thing we ask for, destroy the devil's work. We're okay with that. Who likes the devil? We have no love for the devil. Let him be destroyed. And he's sufficiently theoretical and sufficiently unreal to us that the notion that he should be destroyed is fine. We got no problem with that. Destroy the devil. That's good. And every force which revolts against you, we then say, well, now that's getting per- more personal and closer to home because that includes not just theoretical things, but real people, people that we may know, people we may even have an affection for, but who are nonetheless against God, against His Word, against His will, against His church. It may not be everybody in our society that's being described here, but certainly there are enough that we can think of a name that that we realize now we're getting particular, now we're getting specific and are we really content to pray that God should destroy those in our lives that revolt against him there are people we know that we would hope he wouldn't destroy though they do revolt against him how do we understand this how do we deal with this well what if our struggle here in part is a compassionate thing which is good but also in part a misunderstanding thing you see we tend to display god in his glory as our greatest good and replace it with us and our own glory we spend more time advancing our own kingdom than advancing his. And the reason that's significant is because when we are at the heart of the story, then our loved ones, our standards, our expectations have the greater priority. Then God's judgments against sinners are problematic because they displace us as the center of the story. When when God gets to decide who is saved and who is lost, then I am no longer sovereign in my life. Then I must bow the knee before Him. And ultimately, that's, to us as sinners, the dark side of the gospel. We don't like the idea that someone else should decide who we think should be saved. But that changes when we adopt a new perspective. Think about the oncologist who works in the hospital and devotes his life to freeing people from cancer. And he works diligently day and night in order to remove this insidious illness or these insidious illnesses and all their effects. Don't you want a doctor like that? Don't you want your oncologist to say to you, I'm going to destroy this thing in you. I'm going to free you from this. I'm going to take every cell that revolts against you and eradicate it. That would be an encouraging thing. That would be a positive thing. That would be a blessed thing. Well, then why shouldn't God say the same thing of His good creation, of His good kingdom, of His good world? where He is sovereign and His Son is King of kings and Lord of lords, where His kingdom is coming, for His will is sovereign over all of history. And when that kingdom comes in its fullness, then those who belong to this kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, who have submitted themselves to His rule more and more, who have witnessed to the world about Jesus Christ... When that kingdom comes, those who belong to the kingdom will enter into the eternal life filled with praise and joy and order and structure and security and everything good. But those who do not will enter into eternal judgment filled with grief and suffering. And that's the truth, whether we like it or not. Whether we want to admit it about our son or our daughter, our cousin, our aunt, uncle, friend, neighbor... Whether we want to admit the ugly and hard truth of sin's wickedness and grasp upon their lives, whether we want to pretend like we can save them, that we can bring them out of their sin, whatever the delusion we may have, the truth is Jesus reigns and he will destroy those who oppose him and deliver those who trust him. That's our comfort as believers. That this world is advancing to its glorious conclusion, which is the fullness of the kingdom of God. When you read Revelation, especially chapters 21 and 22, and you see the glory of what's coming, your heart is filled with joy, and you join with the apostle in saying, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But it also ought to motivate our ministry now. Now. For the coming of the kingdom of God means that those loved ones that are in our lives that do not know the Lord or are not living with the Lord must repent. That's where our compassion needs to kick in. That's where our desire to see others saved needs to come in. We need to realize we know what they're headed for. We know what God's going to do to them if they do not repent and believe. And now is the opportunity to speak to them. Now is the opportunity to win them. Now is the opportunity to share with them that powerful word of hope, which is Jesus Christ. You see, that's what we're being called to do here, to acknowledge the truth that that in the end, we are not the center of this story. God is. And what we're asking God to do in this petition is to become more and more the center of, Of our lives that personally we walk more closely with him that publicly we testify more powerfully to him and that we are motivated in light of who he is and what he's done to win others for the Lord this is a petition we need to pray regularly this is a petition that needs to remind us that we are not advancing our own kingdoms that we are to be busy each and every day at our jobs in our schools at our homes with advancing the kingdom of Christ. For he reigns and rules and he will come one day to stand upon the earth. And for those who love him, that will be a day of great joy. And for those who have revolted against him, that will be a day of great fear. If you are with us today and you are rebelling against Christ, and you don't know him, aren't submitting your life to him, even if you're a member of our congregation, and you know that your life is not lived in submission to Jesus Christ, then hear the warning of this petition. Your kingdom come. It is coming. And he will stand upon the earth. Repent. Believe. Cry out to him for mercy and he will welcome you for he never turns away the soul that seeks him. And if you are living for the Lord, if you are committed to Christ as King, and more and more seek this, the truth of this petition to be worked out in your life. To submit more and more to the reign of Jesus Christ and to live more publicly in the light of who Christ is and in the light of his coming. Which is only to say we all need to be praying this petition regularly. Let's do that now before the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, you do teach us what is real and what is important and what is true. When you say to us, your kingdom come, when you teach us to pray, your kingdom come. And we do pray, O heavenly God and Father, that you would now rule us more and more by your word and spirit so that we would submit to you in increasing measure with growing sanctification and joy. We also pray, even as we see the world around us decaying, that you would preserve and increase your church so that we might be a light upon a hill to those who are living in darkness. And we do earnestly desire, Lord, that you would destroy the devil's work, destroy every force that revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until all your kingdom fully comes and when you will then be all and in all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.